Welcome to Hear Me Out. I'm your host, Celeste Headley. Independence Day is a massive cause for celebration in this country, and we celebrate revolutions in hindsight. But in practice, when you're living through a revolution, I think, never having lived through one, I imagine that revolution is a lot messier than it appears during our picnics and barbecues and fireworks. Revolutions are very often deadly. They're violent, and the upheaval is often unpopular both among those in power and those who benefit from the status quo. In past years, we've seen so-called insurrectionists invoke 1776, and leftists declare urban neighborhoods autonomous zones. And across those political lines, those acts have been quashed, often aggressively. So how should we think about uprisers and revolutionaries? We all know that insurrections can be good. We all know that insurrections have historically gone deeper, reflecting the most oppressed and the most excluded. Writer and organizer Gio Mar joins us on Hear Me Out in just a moment. Stay with us. Coming soon from Slate Podcasts. So, first it was Dade County. Voters in the Miami area repealed civil rights for gay people by a two-to-one margin. In the late 1970s, Cities around the country began rolling back anti-discrimination laws that protected gay people. And then it was Wichita, St. Paul, Eugene. Successful campaigns against the gay community, which shocked us all. A state senator from California watched the laws fall and saw an opportunity. Homosexuality is a most repulsive lifestyle. His name was John Briggs, and he wanted to deliver the anti-gay movement its biggest prize yet. California realized that they were coming for us. I'm Christina Cotarucci. This season on Slow Burn, we'll explore how a nationwide backlash against gays and lesbians led to a massive showdown in California. Now it's something called Proposition 6, the Briggs Initiative. It would call for firing any teachers in California who practice homosexuality. Your life as you knew it would be destroyed. We've got to fight that we can't let this happen in California. The Briggs Initiative would be the first statewide vote on gay rights. With so much at stake, young people became activists. We were all coming out all day long, every day. (laughs) And activists became leaders. My name is Harvey Milk, and I'm here to recruit you. Slow Burn, Season 9, Gays Against Briggs. Out May 22nd, wherever you listen. If we lose here, it'll be 50 years before we ever get back up again. Like the drag queens say, take out the earrings, sharpen the nails. There ain't no going back. Welcome back to Hear Me Out. I'm Celeste Headley. We have a complicated relationship with revolution in this country. We are, of course, celebrating the 4th of July this week. And the American Revolution was, of course, a bloody one. And much of the country celebrates it anyway, with red, white, and blue abandoned. But this country has also instigated revolutions in other parts of the world and attempted to stop ones that did not align with our goals. And let's not forget the speech that Frederick Douglass delivered in the mid-19th century when he said, What to the American slave is your 4th of July? I answer, a day that reveals to him, more than all other days in the year, the gross injustice and cruelty to which he is the constant victim. When revolutions and uprising ferment on our own soil, the status quo is fiercely protected. 
We've seen that time and time again, instigated by struggles for everything from civil rights to the environment. And the January 6th, 2021 siege on the Capitol was a lot of things. Criminal, fueled by bigotry among them. But it was also an uprising carried out by people who thought they were right. When a group of citizens attempt to overthrow the powers in charge, we either celebrate it or we cast it as shameful, criminal, and reckless. So as we think back on our nation's history this Independence Day, let's also think back on the nature of revolution and insurrection and how our thoughts about revolution change depending on whether the revolution is successful or not. Gilmar has joined us on the show before. He's a writer and political organizer. And today, he joins us to make the case for good faith insurrection as necessary and as righteous. Okay, so the opinion that you bring to us today is that insurrection can be good. So as usual, I got to start with a definition of terms. Um, What qualifies in your mind as an insurrection? I mean, it's a good question, right? Um, you know, when I think insurrection, I think a sort of an uprising, a mass uprising, an uprising against a system, against an in- institution, um, a, a very sudden thing and momentary thing involving masses of people. Um, but we also need to understand that the way that terms are defined has a sort of historical texture to it. It emerges over time. Words acquire uh, new meanings and, and gain meanings over time and shift meanings. And, and this is part of the um, part of the question. We we live in a moment where um, suddenly there's the word insurrection is being thrown around in the media all the time. And, and I and I admit that I um, I found it a little strange, uh, you know, when it happened, right? When, you know, we're talking about the storming of the Capitol and when insurrection became the term um, that was that was chosen. Um, because there are lots of different words um, that you can, that you could choose, um, you know, for that. Um, and and what, what struck me in a fundamental way was that by focusing on insurrection to describe the events of January 6th, we were um, really focusing on the form of what happened as opposed to the content. Um, and for me, the content was really the very troubling part, right? We're talking about a sort of white supremacist uh, mob um, trying to, you know, fight back uh, against, um, you know, not only the institutional transfer of power, um, but against, you know, if we're talking, if we're thinking about what people, you know, believe and think against Black Lives Matter, against justice movements, against movements for equality, this was an anti-egalitarian movement, right? This is an anti, you know, a, a rebellion against justice, right? Which is not always how these things play out historically. Okay, but what would it mean? You say it was, we were focused on form instead of content, and the content you've made very clear, and I feel like if, you, if anybody watched what was happening, um, you could see what the content was, but what's the form that you're talking about? I mean, historically speaking, we know, we all know that insurrections can be good. We all know that insurrections lay behind almost all sort of revolutionary changes of power. We know that there are insurrections built into U.S. history. Um, There are insurrections built into the French Revolution, the American uh, Revolution. Um, But also even more than that, um, that insurrections have historically been, uh, you know, gone deeper in the sense of reflecting the, you know, resistance from the most oppressed, right, and the most excluded. This isn't an accident, right? It's 
if you're sort of systematically excluded um, and invisibilized, the only way you can gain access to power is through a kind of explosive, you know, street protests, you know, direct action, um, you know, takeovers of, uh, you know, a government spaces. Um, and this has historically been, you know, been the case. Something very interesting happens, though, and here we return to, I think, the, the historic development of, of these terms. Um, so at a certain point, it becomes sort of Europeans are doing revolutions, right? They have these ideas of how to change society, forethought, rationality, all these things. Rebellion is what happens in the global south. Rebellion is what slaves do. Insurgency is what slaves do. Insurgency is what, um, you know, the two, those who are too radical um, and too uh, sort of uh, unworthy of the name revolution uh, engage in. And this is the way that the historical, you know, question then plays out. And of course, you have slave rebellions, you have anti-colonial insurgencies. And on the one hand, um, that's uh, a sort of coding. But on the other hand, we want to, I think, up uphold that. This is part of fighting against these institutions. Part of fighting against colonialism and fighting against slavery is to rise up. Okay, but I got to jump in here because fighting against oppression is in the eye of the beholder, right? Um, there have been plenty of insurrections carried out by groups that have that felt oppressed, <laughs> but in the end, um, became more violent and autocratic. I mean, even going back centuries to the establishment of the Order of Assassins, which is where we get that word, right? Um, a sect of, of Shia Islam that took over and became extremely violent. We have insurrections where a group, you know, if you could look at Afghanistan and would you say, say that that would be called an insurrection that brings in an autocratic religious rule there. I mean, deciding whether an insurrection is, is, is in support of the rights of the people, that that's an opinion that may not be supported by everybody, right? In a certain sense, yes. If we understand that insurrection is a mass phenomenon, then there's then there's an origin there. There's a root there. It's not it's not simply something staged necessarily. It's not something um, where you know the the strings are being pulled from above. Except in so far as those strings are pulling on real things, right? Real structures of oppression, real poverty, real uh, you know uh, degradation, and. Um, it, it, but none of that is to is to disagree, right? Uh, of course, insurrection can can mean different things, and that's in, in many ways, um, you know what you know what we're talking about in January six, right? But again, here's the question, right? The question is one of content. The question is of understanding the fact that if insurrection can you know break open the floodgates and help to you know uh, usher in greater situations of equality, um, it has to be tied to uh, you know a vision for what that would look like. It has to be tied to an alternative, um, and it has to be you know grounded in those those, you know, struggles for, for justice. In the present, I think it's incredibly important, right? Because the last thing we should do, and this is what struck me so, uh, you know, so wrong-headed about describing, uh, you know, January the 6th as, a, as an insurrection, which is that we ultimately do want insurrectionary movements. We do want people to be willing to rise up against oppression. We do want struggles um, to, to embrace the sort of radicalism of those demands um, and to attempt to transform power, right? Institutions of power are never really willing to to transform themselves, right? They always requ require something um, that that you know often looks like uh, an insurrection, or at the very least, will be described as as insurrectionary by those who who oppose it. Okay, but the the people who many of the people who participated in the the January sixth riot, whatever you choose to call it, believed they were leading an insurrection. I want to play this bit of audio. This is former President Trump speaking on January 6th from that stage, not far away from the Capitol, talking about, I, I guess, the motivations behind the violence. 
All of us here today do not want to see our election victory stolen by emboldened radical left Democrats, which is what they're doing, and stolen by the fake news media. That's what they've done and what they're doing. We will never give up. We will never concede. It doesn't happen. You don't concede when there's theft involved. Our country has had enough. We will not take it anymore. And that's what this is all about. Okay, so I in no way, shape or form am uh, trying to imply um, that he's correct in his facts. The, the election was not stolen. It was one of the safest and, and most secure in history. But the people involved in, uh, in the uprising, the riot on the 6th, believed that their democracy, many of them believed their democracy was being stolen. And we know that from the court proceedings when they've been prosecuted and they said, "How I, I can't believe I believed all that stuff. Yeah. Oh, absolutely right. But it goes beyond that, right? It, it goes to this conception of, you know, of who, you know, the, the sort of ways of thinking that have been built into the American far right for a long time, right? Which go back to the American Revolution, right? Again, it goes back to this idea of there being this sort of safety valve of, uh, you know, when tyranny comes, we have the right to resist, right? Again, I'm not someone that's going to disagree with that, but it's become such a, an embedded part of, of the far right that that's actually the entire structure of it, which is to say, who are the oath keepers? They're those who keep an oath to uphold the original, you know, you know, founding of this nation um, against the tyranny that comes, right? And the three percenters are those who are brave enough to, you know, to do it and, and to take on that responsibility. This is the entirety, in a certain way, of the identity of some of these far right groups, and it's very peculiar, right? It's not strictly, uh, um, you know, uh, what you might expect from a sort of revolutionary or insurrectionary or insurgent force. It's not saying we need to dramatically overhaul and transform in, you know, in a forward-looking direction what our society looks like. It's a reactionary conservative movement that seeks to, on a certain level, go back to a mythical uh, sort of, uh, you know, state of, of founding uh, of the U.S. What do we, you know, what is the content of that? Of course, you know, if we're looking at the sort of original documents we're talking about embedded in, in you know, uh, structured white supremacy, um, free access to land, radical capitalism. Th you know, these are all the, the things that that carries uh, with it. Um, but it's important to understand the way that they understand themselves to be in a kind of, in a strange, very paradoxical kind of resistance against that very same structure that they claim to be upholding in a different form, right? Um, this is very common in the American far right. And it leads to these kind of waves of uh, rupture where, um, you know, the majority of the American right wing will be on board with the right wing party of the time, whether it's the Republicans or another. Um, and then in a certain moment, we'll break away. Um, we had this with sort of militia movement, you know, in and after um, the Reagan era. And you had it with Trump as well. All of these far right movements sweeping into support this person, then becoming kind of disillusioned. And certainly in this case, um, with the, the, the you know, prospect of Trump losing power, uh, mobilized to, uh, you know, prevent the tyranny from uh, ultimately taking over. It's a very strange, logical construction of the far right. But again, that's the reason that we need to understand, I think, um, the content, right? We need to understand what that conception of insurrection, even if they were to use the word insurrection, what is it they mean by that? What are they bringing with it? Um, and what are they, what are they implying in, in their sort of, uh, you know, claim? of outrage um, in their process for moving forward. It's a return to the past. So essentially you're saying insurrections are healthy. Does an insurrection have to be successful in order for you to consider it good and healthy? 
Oh, no, certainly not. If anything, uh, if insurrections were really successful, then we would start to call them other things, right? We might start to call them revolutions. We might start to, t- to call them in, you know, in some contexts, guerrilla wars or sort of, you know, other, you know, other sort of broader frames, right? Um, and what you have historically is that the ways in which insurrections um, provide a spark, um, they provide a moment, um, they also provide an impetus for change, right? There is a way in which you could view the George Floyd rebellions as insurrectionary, right? I mean, I'm not, you know, like, that. I think that's that's a valid interpretation of the fact that where people were in the streets rebelling, resisting, um, and demanding that the power structure um, take their demand, you know, the, the you know their their uh, you know concerns into account, um, and essentially saying, listen, we we won't be moved otherwise, or there will be more of this otherwise. Um, this is why, in the history of sort of black struggle in the U.S., um, you have um, insurgent movements, you have insurrectionary moments, you have people rising up taking over cities, rebelling, rioting, um, and making it absolutely clear. Why? Because, you know, as the, you know, as the sort of well-known phrase goes, this is a language of the unheard, right? It's those who are excluded, who are pushed into a kind of resistance um, that moves beyond the official channels by, by design, right? If you exclude people, if you invisibilize them, if you oppress them to a certain degree, um, and if you provide them no other alternatives to, chan- to transform that system, people will take to the streets and they'll do so in radical ways, whether it's the Boston Tea Party or, you know, or other, you know, other, or the storming of the Bastille, right? Um, these are the, the sort of insurrectionary preludes to, to uh, more radical claims for transforming power. So what do you make then of the, the great activists who have decried any kind of violence when it comes to bringing about change? I mean, you could start with Joan Baez, who said uh, nonviolence is a flop. The only bigger flop is violence. Or you could get a little bit more formal about it and go to Martin Luther King Jr., who said nonviolence is the answer to the crucial political and moral questions of our time. The need for mankind to overcome oppression and violence without resorting to oppression and violence. No, I mean, it's a great question. I mean, King, though, knew perfectly well that he was operating, especially in the later years, in an insurrectionary moment, right? He knew that his, and he viewed his task as um, sort of steering and channeling the discontent that was spilling over into the streets um, in a way that he hoped could be nonviolent, right? And there are a lot of, of course, long debates over nonviolence. There are long debates over whether nonviolence ever works in isolation, um, you know, which is, is a good question with regard to the civil rights movement. Um, you know, King, the same King who was, of course, decried, you know, as a violent agitator um, by the US government and its sort of institutions, um, was very quickly transformed into someone that could, um, you know, negotiate legislation, and then very quickly after his death turned into a saint, right? This was someone that the US government, you know, the CIA and the FBI hated, right, and saw as himself violent, no matter what he did, right, Um, because of the kind of movements that stood behind him. Um, But this all happened in the context of black power, right? It happened in the context of insurgent movements, youth movements, riots that were threatening something far more dangerous, right, to the system. Um, and so in those contexts, it's it's um, much easier um, to acquire systemic change, you know, with the threat of what's often referred to in the literature as an armed flank or an insurrectionary flank um, that is, you know, that is providing a, a sort of a, a threat. Um, but there are other questions, right, which is the fact that, you know, violence is so embedded in structures of oppression, domination, colonialism, white supremacy, um, that it's very difficult um, to get those systems to give up power uh, voluntarily, right? To give up those privileges without, um, if not violence, some kind of force, right? The, the Civil War, you know, is of course was of course an incredibly violent uh, response to uh, to a white supremacist institution. 
And, and it's really important, I think, to understand that, you know, what equality existed after the Civil War in the South under Reconstruction was uh, made possible by military occupation, right? As soon as that military occupation was withdrawn, we got Jim Crow, we got segregation, we got, you know, the, the Klan and other kinds of violence uh, against black people who were simply trying to vote. Um, so nonviolence is an incredibly difficult prospect, although there are situations in which it can be very, very, uh, you know, useful. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, I will I will quote some historians to push back on that idea. Uh, we are speaking to Dio Mar about whether insurrection is good, um, and we will continue this conversation in a moment. You're listening to Hear Me Out, a podcast from Slate. I'm Celeste Headley. Stay with us. And we're back. Thanks for staying with us on Hear Me Out and our spicy opinion of the day. Insurrection is a public good. And I'm speaking with Gio Mar, uh, an activist, writer, and a supporter of insurrections in general, if not in in specificity. And I want to read you, and I, and I pardon that this is a little bit long, but th- there's this great book by a couple historians called Why Civil Resistance Works. And they said this, in countries in which violent insurgencies have been victorious, we find, however, that the country is much less likely to become a peaceful democracy after the conflict has ended. On the other hand, in analogous countries where mass nonviolent campaigns have occurred, we see a higher rate of post-conflict democracies. And they say, some may cite the American Revolution against the British as a counterexample. It should be remembered, however, that the armed insurgency against British forces, notably in the form of guerrilla warfare, was Seated by a decade of parallel institution building, nonviolent boycotts, civil disobedience, non-cooperation, and other nation-building methods. Your response, Gio? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot said there that I think is incredibly true, right? Um, violent civil war and insurgency is incredibly dangerous. Um, it's also very often the way that institutions, old institutions, are finally ultimately removed. Um, and the example given there, right, says, you know, ultimately the, the, the way you could read that is to say, given all of this nonviolent protest, but again, insurrectionary moments, Boston Tea Party, other things, right, these, these moments of, of open rebellion, um, given all of these in preparation, then, uh, you know, a, a revolutionary war um, can be carried out and can be victorious, leaving aside other aspects of the American Revolution, the sort of slave-owning aspects, the fact that this was, uh, you know, in many ways a rebellion of the property um, that sought to sort of maintain those, those structures. But, um, you know, sticking to, to that point, Again, there's a lot to be said there, um, but the implication should never be that um, that the persistence of structures of oppression and domination, um, even if they persist in um, you know in sort of relatively peace, in, you know relative peace, or if they persist under a sort of formal system of democracy, that's never something that I'm going to sort of you know point to as as a victory, right? Um, and and very often what you have are these sort of partial. Um, successes, um, whether it's, you know, decolonization or whether it's the abolition of slavery in certain contexts in which we, you know, there, in which there's no real acquisition of equality and rights, right? And so there's this tendency over time for that resistance, that rebellion to need to roll on or to be folded into, um, again, the kind of like ongoing violence that, that we see um, as a result and, and as the sort of long durée outcome of, uh, you know, of white supremacy. Um, you know, there are also very important things to be said for the fact that, you know, fighting for equality and fighting for freedom is incredibly important. 
sometimes that looks violent, sometimes it looks nonviolent. But um, here, I think I kind of want to like home in a bit on the on the psychic implications of struggle, right? The fact that people standing up and fighting um, prepares them for uh, a life in sort of civic and, and democratic life, right? Again, sometimes that looks violent by necessity, right? If you're fighting a, a sort of war against, you know, uh, colonialism in Africa, the colonizer is not going anywhere without a fight, right? It's simply a, a sort of requirement of the struggle. Um, or, or whether you're engaging in <clears throat> nonviolent strikes elsewhere, you're standing up. Right, and I think that is a crucial preparatory preparatory stage for for civic participation. It gives people a sense of equality. It gives them a sense of uh, self worth that allows them to sort of then um, be good, you know, uh, good citizens of a of a new of a new nation and new government. However, um, an attempted insurrection is often met by even more authoritarian and a backlash that is. Equally, if not more violent than before, it can often mean a clamping down on, on civil rights. And we have seen this over and over and over again. Isn't it true that most insurrections aren't successful? Absolutely. Right. Or, or not successful in the sense of winning, winning victory and winning power. Right. We would probably often call them something different if they were successful. Um, that's absolutely true. I, again, like we shouldn't blame the, the oppressed for failing, right, to overthrow their oppressors. Um, but I think, you know, people are very aware of the dangers that these imply. Right? We can look even at the history of the Black Panther Party um, and its sort of perception as um, an insurrectionary movement and an insurgent movement, um, of which it was in certain kinds of ways. In the way that it was targeted, right? The way that it was targeted for elimination by the FBI, we know perfectly well. Um, but, uh, you know, but of course, as a representative of a community that's suffering systematic oppression, right? Not only, um, you know, legal oppression, but also extra legal um, inequality um, and ongoing, uh, you know, social questions. Um, you know, th the question is how best to fight and how best to win. Right. Sometimes that might involve elements of nonviolence, of course, um, but it also might by necessity require, um, you know, more direct means, violent or not, confrontational or not. And again, to be perfectly clear, the civil rights movement was incredibly confrontational, right? Um, it also involved, and I think this part needs to be told, um, armed self-defense, right? In other words, the use of arms to keep the movement safe from those who would attack it, destroy it, and kill it. Um, but the tactic of nonviolence was, of course, a, a major part of certain aspects of that movement as well. And I think we need, always need to understand that these pieces are coming together in complicated ways, um, strategic ways. There are disagreements about that strategy. Within those disagreements and even between those different sectors, often we find the grounds for the success or the failure of these movements. Isn't it possible that a January 6th rioter could excerpt part of this podcast and use it to support their idea of insurrection and say, look, this radical leftist <laughs> also thinks it was our right to rise up in outrage over the threat to democracy. I mean, I think, of course, only by radically transforming what, uh, you know, what, uh, you know, what we're talking about, right? Um, <clears throat> because they weren't fighting for equality, right? They weren't fighting for progress. They weren't fighting for a vision of justice, right? Um, they would say that they're fighting for justice, but um, uh, ultimately there's no way beyond, um, you know, this, this sort of ideological standoff, which says that justice for them is justice for white landowning, you know, people in this country to genocide indigenous people, take their land, enslave people, you know, use that labor to build up their own wealth, right? Um, and to oppose any attempt to fight back against that, right? Um, 
I think luckily we're at a tipping point in this country where, um, you know, where things are going to be able to move very quickly, where the far right is going to be in a period of decline, where people are ready to fight for equality and fight for justice, as we've seen in the streets in these sort of quasi-insurrectionary moments. Again, like there's this this, this phrase, and it always struck me as a very defensive phrase um, by certain, particularly Democratic politicians that said, well, Black Lives Matter never stormed the Capitol. Yeah. And it's like, well, why not, right? And again, we're not talking about like smashing the windows or, or necessarily like attacking people. On the one hand, there's a reason that that didn't happen, of course, long histories of, of, of oppression cut both ways. Um, but, you know, but the reality is um, an insurrectionary black struggle that is demanding equality, that is demanding actual equality and justice in this moment. Um, and that is demanding a sort of reparation for, you know, hundreds of years of, of oppression, past and present. Um, that's a very different, that's a very different equation. That's the kind of movement that, of course, I would support. When you say you would support it, um, can you imagine actually participating in an insurrection? Is that as far as you support it that you would actually become involved? I mean, we were in the streets, right? We were in the streets in 2020. We were in the streets, you know, in the rebellions, the George Floyd rebellions, which I hope people remember were a massive movement that spread like wildfire across the country and across the world, right? People in England were tearing down statues in Latin America and South Africa um, and, and across Europe in response to the bravery that people showed in Minneapolis, which again was a bravery of rebelling, rioting, um, burning some things down, demanding justice, demanding the arrest of this officer, um, burning down the, the police precinct, right? Which, which, um, it's worth, and I always, you know, emphasize this, when CNN polled um, people, 54% of those polled said that it thought they thought it was reasonable to sort of burn down the, the, third, the third police precinct in Minneapolis um, because of the violence that had been inflicted on, on George Floyd, right? Um, that movement, that rebellion, that insurrectionary wildfire led us to where we are today, which is much more open and frank conversations about um, about injustice it led even white public opinion to be far more aware of what you know what, what black people in particular are going you know uh, enduring at the hands of police um, and it led to conversations about defunding transforming the police all of these things are the result of that insurrectionary moment let me jump in here really quickly though because you're talking about violence against property mm -hmm. but many of the insurrections you've cited included violence against other people um, yes, and this is a, it's an incredibly important line, right? Uh, you know, to, to draw, um, for the most part, um, movements for justice um, try to avoid unnecessary, you know, violence, unnecessary bloodshed, while drawing a sharp line between, you know, people and property, um, breaking windows, um, lighting fires that don't harm anyone, are sometimes the um, most, uh, you know, the, the most obvious way to get attention for the cause of justice and to move forward uh, on that basis. Um, but again, you know, uh, it, it's it's also just it's just historically um, bad faith to act as if there are no situations in which warfare is the result of struggles for justice. Right? Um, again, slavery didn't go away. Um, because of nonviolent um, struggles. Slavery didn't go away because people voted, right? The whole point was that there was a war required for people to even be able to vote. Um, and even then, that wasn't enough um, because of the sort of white violence that came in, in response. Um, so I think we do need to think in a more complicated way about the conditions under which, you know, insurrection can succeed and can lead in the direction of equality and justice. It, I, I, I think it's also important to note that the Civil War... Um, wasn't intended to end slavery. <laughs> that's not why that war was started. No, but that's but that's what you know when. And this is where you know, the great 
you know, W.B. Du Bois, a black reconstruction is so important because it was slaves themselves walking off plantations, rising up, joining that struggle that made it a war uh, against slavery um, and transformed the meaning of the war in the process. But it's absolutely true that wasn't the, the initial goal. Um, but again, the question was, what would be necessary to preserve equality in the aftermath? And it required federal troops. It required black militias. And the first thing that reactionary forces and the Klan did was to target black militias and then to pressure the federal government to withdraw the troops. Um, and again, we got Jim Crow as a result. We got you know, many decades of uh, you know, black codes and systematic legal inequality. We need to understand that you know um, that the, the struggle for justice takes different forms. I think, um, and you know, while um, these forms raise obvious moral questions and moral moral quandaries, um, we uh, you know we need to be aware that the fundamental question is about how do you win justice and how do you move forward um, with a new system of new institutions that uphold that justice. Look, we know you have opinions on this topic. We have opinions too, but we want you to share your thoughts with us. Email the show. It's hearmeout at slate.com. And we are still getting emails about our conversation with Coleman Hughes a few weeks ago about whether or not the descendants of enslaved people deserve reparations. We love your passion on this topic. And we want to share a note that we got from a listener named Allison. Allison wrote this. Coleman Hughes presented logical arguments throughout the podcast, but the host did not reciprocate. Whenever Coleman presented an alternative opinion with an example, Celeste would dismiss it with a statement that neither of them were experts in XYZ. Overall, this didn't feel like the productive discussion Celeste kept referring to. I would disagree with that, Allison. I would ask you to go back to the discussion again, mainly because the only times I said that we weren't experts in a specific thing when when we were talking about a very specific subject in which Coleman was venturing in to give opinions on something that has been very closely studied and topics on which there are experts who have found answers. But as a journalist, I think it's irresponsible to start entertaining opinions on things that are not based on facts. That's not the kind of conversation we want to have on this podcast. We want to make sure that everything here is an intellectually honest conversation that's based on evidence and facts. But I absolutely welcome your thoughts and respect your opinion. And it sounds like you agreed more with Coleman than with me. And that's okay. If you have thoughts, whether you agree with our guest or not, you are always welcome to email the show. It is hearmeout at slate.com. And we want to take this opportunity to remind you to leave Hear Me Out a great rating and review wherever you are listening. It really does help the show find more ears, and we appreciate it. Hear Me Out is a podcast from Slate. The show is produced by Maura Curry. Ben Richmond is the Senior Director of Podcast Operations, and Alicia Montgomery is VP of Slate Audio. I'm your host, Celeste Headley. Until next time, speak your mind, but keep it open. Coming soon from Slate Podcasts. So, first it was Dade County. Voters in the Miami area repealed civil rights for gay people by a two-to-one margin. In the late 1970s, cities around the country began rolling back anti-discrimination laws that protected gay people. And then it was Wichita, St. Paul, Eugene. Successful campaigns against the gay community, which shocked us all. A state senator from California watched the laws fall and saw an opportunity. Homosexuality is a most repulsive lifestyle. His name was John Briggs, and he wanted to deliver the anti-gay movement its biggest prize yet. 
California realized that they were coming for us. I'm Christina Cotarucci. This season on Slow Burn, we'll explore how a nationwide backlash against gays and lesbians led to a massive showdown in California. Now it's something called Proposition 6, the Briggs Initiative. It would call for firing any teachers in California who practice homosexuality. Your life as you knew it would be destroyed. We've got to fight back. We can't let this happen in California. The Briggs Initiative would be the first statewide vote on gay rights. Gay rights, now! Gay rights With so much at stake, young people became activists. We were all coming out all day long, every day. <laughs> and activists became leaders. My name is Harvey Milk, and I'm here to recruit you. Slow Burn, Season 9, Gays Against Briggs. Out May 22nd, wherever you listen. If we lose here, it'll be 50 years before we ever get back up again. Like the drag queens say, take out the earrings, sharpen the nails, there ain't no going back.